The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Up next is a chat with Deborah Waterhouse, the CEO of Aviv Healthcare, the HIV division of UK drug maker GlaxoSmithKline. And she is joined by Dr. Kimberly Smith, head of research and development of that same division. Welcome back to The Exchange, a podcast interviewing people of financial interest from around the world. I'm Amy Donlan, a columnist of Breaking Views, a financial commentary arm of Reuters. Kimberly and Deborah have been working on treatments for HIV for decades, but they're particularly excited about longer form remedies that will give their customers greater freedom from the stigma of the virus and the daily grind of taking oral treatments. But GSK isn't the only drug maker looking into this space. Gilead is also working on an even longer form treatment that could go head to head in the market. Deborah and Kimberly talked candidly about how they first came in contact with the virus, how far we've come, and what needs to happen next. Well, Kimberly and Deborah, you are very welcome to the exchange. I'm very keen to chat to you about HIV treatment, this whole market what you guys are doing in long-term treatments. It seems to me that you're at the real cutting edge. So, yeah, I'm really keen to chat to you. I mean, I think I'll start off, uh, Kimberly, with you. I'd love you to tell me your first kind of encounter with HIV, kind of take yourself back to the, I guess, to the very beginning and and what the virus looked like, what you understood of it and and how kind of treatment evolved from that point. Wow, that's going to date me, but I will say that I remember sort of the bad old days of HIV when it was, you know, first seen and you and I mostly saw it on television as a protest, right? There were act up protests and there were die-ins and there were, you know, there was all that drama and it, it grabbed my attention. Now, at that point, I was headed to medical school and it grabbing my attention then obviously has impacted my life because I've spent my whole life really in one way or another really working on HIV. The first encounters with people living with HIV were actually friends in New York who um, have sadly passed away. And, you know, you didn't necessarily know at the time that that they were living with HIV, but, you know, when that, when a a young gay male passes away in his 20s back in the late 80s and early 90s that was you know fairly obvious that that was what was going on and so that was my first encounter my first encounter from a medical standpoint was when i was a medical student and we did rounds in the hospital and rotated on different wards and i saw you know the terrible sight of again young mostly men, but some women who were really near death because of AIDS. And by that point, AZT was around, but you know we didn't have the combinations of therapy that could control HIV. Those combinations really didn't come around until around 1996. And so I'm, I'm talking mostly in the late 80s and early 90s. I graduated medical school in 1993. And so, you know, you can imagine that four years prior to that was really still in the really tough time of HIV. And so it's quite miraculous to have seen over the last 30 years the enormous 
our medical miracle that is now what we see with HIV. And that mid-90s, if you were diagnosed with HIV at that time, what would be your typical treatment? So let's say your daily red, red regime of drugs. How many drugs would you have to take? What were the sort of side effects? How would that, how would that have all looked? Yeah. So by 1996, we had what we called highly active antiretroviral therapy. And so that was the first set of medicines that controlled HIV reasonably well. And when I say reasonably well, we're talking about you know, somewhere in around 40 or 50 percent of people getting to undetectable, getting their virus completely suppressed. But in order to do that, they took usually at least three different types of pills, but they also took them many times a day. And so it wasn't unusual that someone would have to take, you know, 20 or more pills a day by, and they'd be literally by the clock. So, you know, they people literally set their alarms for every eight hours to make sure that they took their medicines on time. And, 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 and it was required that you do that in order to keep your virus suppressed. But those medicines had really terrible side effects. People had so much diarrhea that they, they, they literally, I mean, I remember the conversations with patients where if they went somewhere in public, the first thing they would do was identify where was the restroom because they built their life around living with diarrhea. They had chronic nausea. Many of them had numbness and tingling in their fingers, in their toes, actually around their mouth from as a side effect from the medications. It's, it's a laundry list of things that people went through in that time. So it was really, it, it was very hard for folks to consistently be adherent. So if you know that taking your medicines is going to mean you're going to be nauseated for the rest of the day, that's pretty hard. You know, I mean, you think of, you know, women, you know, go through this all the time, right, with pregnancy and we experience that nausea. If you could take it away in some way, you sure would. And so, you know, folks had to live with taking a medicine that they knew was keeping them alive, but was making them feel miserable. Okay. And so, Deborah, then we have now much better treatment options. So where are we today then? What is GSK offering at this point? And we'll kind of move on to the kind of what you're doing, obviously, in kind of longer term treatment options. But if you're now living with HIV, what do you what do you do on a daily basis these days? So if if you think back to the time when Kim was just describing late 80s, early 90s, the life expectancy of a person diagnosed with HIV was round about 18 months. Today, with the medications that we have, a person living with HIV that takes their medication has the same life expectancy as someone that's not living with HIV. And I remind myself of that every day because that is the incredible and powerful impact that that science can have on what is an extraordinarily uh, challenging disease. So today, uh, a majority of people would be taking one tablet a day. Uh, Some people take a tablet that has three uh, drugs in it. We have just launched a medicine that has two drugs in it. So reducing the pill burden and you just take it once a day. And, And so that's what a majority of people are taking. So we've managed as an industry to make HIV a smaller part of people's lives. But actually, we're very connected to the community and to people who are living with HIV And we know what they want from us, what they want in terms of the next step forward. And what they've been talking to us about for a long time is less medicine. So the smallest amount of medicine that they can take uh, to to suppress their virus, because people are on the medication 40, 50 years. 
And then the second they want is, can I have something that's long acting? So I could kind of forget every day about the reminder of being HIV positive. And can I have something that I take, you know, four, five, six times a year? Can you do that for me? And then the other thing they always ask us about is, can you find us a cure? And we are working on a cure, but actually today we, we've just launched uh, long acting HIV treatments, which we think are going to revolutionise the way that the disease is treated. So we're in a super exciting place at the moment. Absolutely. But unfortunately, the numbers of people who are actually being infected with HIV aren't really going anywhere. Could you tell me just a little bit about that? Maybe I'll, I'll switch it to Kim. What are the numbers looking like? Because obviously I know it'd be hard maybe to detect with with the pandemic and, and infection rates and people obviously haven't been going to the doctor and, and maybe getting those diagnoses as much as they were before. But what are the kind of numbers telling you about how many people are being infected each year? And I suppose the types of people and where it's happening. Sure. So in the United States, there are roughly 36 to 38,000 new infections diagnosed every year, and that's up with data up through 2019. And so the data hasn't been updated for a, a reason you might imagine. The CDC has been a little busy with another issue, but we expect the, some updates and those numbers to come hopefully this year. So that has been pretty much flat for the last, I would say, the last five or six years is basically where it's been. Tiny little decreases, roughly 1% over every couple of years, you're seeing a little bit uh, of decrease, which is you know, positive, but certainly not the type of trajectory need, we need to have to get to the end of the epidemic, which is what we're, what we're all seeking. And so who is that? That is primarily African-American and Latinx men who have sex with men. They make up roughly 70% of the new cases in the U.S. Among women, that is overwhelmingly African-American women. So roughly 60 to 70% of the new cases in women are African-American women. The CDC has identified specific counties where there's high rates and understands exactly where the numbers are going up versus where they're going down and where they're flat. And the hot spot in the United States is really the Southeast United States, where you're really seeing a lot of new infections. Now, there's still, you know, infections that are happening in New York, Chicago, big cities and in rural regions. But the Southeast is the real hotbed. Yes. And then we think about globally, actually, Kim. So you've got 22,000 new infections in Europe, so slightly lower than the U.S., but still the significant burden of disease sits in sub-Saharan Africa. So there's a globally, there's 1.7 million new infections a year. And Kim's talked about the US, Europe, I've just mentioned. There are middle income countries where you have quite high incidence and, and significant numbers of new infections, but the burden still sits in sub-Saharan Africa. And so as a company, when we when we look at this from a global perspective, we need to make sure that we are doing all we can to ensure access to the best medicines possible happen at a global level, not just in the places where you have enough wealth to pay for medication. Absolutely. That was going to kind of lead me on to the next question, Deborah. It's like, how big is this market in terms of billions of dollars spent? How, how big are we talking here? So the value of the HIV market is around $26 billion per year. A majority of that revenue is generated through the US and Europe, Australia, Canada, Japan. So all the kind of the de developed markets where where most pharmaceutical companies um, you know, make their money. But for us, 
it's about the value of the market in which we play, but it's about the burden of disease at a global level. So our model is basically to strike a, a deal, as you do as a pharma company with governments and payers in, in the developed world. We then have big, high volume, low per unit value tenders with middle income countries. And then in the least developed countries of the world, which is where most of the burden of disease is, we give voluntary licenses with no royalty to generic manufacturers so they can produce first class modern medicines for people who are living with HIV. And our dream, we talk about this all the time, is I want to know that somebody in Los Angeles, London, Moscow, Kinshasa, Cape Town has an opportunity to access a dolotegravir based regimen. And we've managed through our work to get to the point where 22 million people living with HIV are on a dolotegravir based regimen. And that is out of the total 27 million people globally who are actually being treated. So we totally believe in that model because you have to have a global perspective on a disease like HIV. And that's the model that we've developed and, and, and it's turned out to be very successful, both financially, because we're, you know, a very uh, profitable company, but from a human health perspective. So, um, so that's worked really well, actually. The only thing I was going to add was that there are roughly 38 million people in the world living with HIV and about 27 million that are on treatment. So the, the goal has been, the UNAIDS goal has been to get to, initially it was 90-90-90, meaning 90% of people knowing their their status, knowing they're HIV infected, 90% in care and 90% with undetectable viral loads. The most, the world is not there yet. And, and actually, you know, when we look around the world, some places are there, like London is there, but the United States is far away from that. So nowhere near, only about 55 to 60% of, of individuals are undetectable in the United States. So there's still, while there's been tremendous progress, there's still a long rate to go and getting this disease completely under control and actually to a point where you're actually seeing reductions in the numbers of people living uh, living with HIV as opposed to continued increases. And it's interesting, I think, for what you were saying about, you know, if you are being treated for HIV now, you are, you know, likely to live just as long as somebody else does. You may only need to take one tablet a day, which if you're a woman, many women throughout the world take the contraceptive pill. That's part of their daily life. They don't see it as a kind of treatment. You can kind of get your head around that sort of treatment regime. But you're obviously pushing that out further. And you mentioned, obviously, that you're in close contact with people who have, I would imagine, constant conversations with people who have HIV and what they need. And so I'm curious about that, that notion of the kind of longer term treatment and how that plays into the market, as in, do you imagine all of those people, hopefully they will realize they have HIV and be treated? Do you think they will want to be on a long term regime where they will take whatever it is once a month, once every three months, what, whatever you guys can get it to, that they would prefer that to the daily dose that they might take at home? When we survey patients, and this is focused primarily on the U.S., when we survey patients about, you know, would they prefer oral versus long-acting, roughly 70% of people say they would like to be on a long-acting medicine. And so that's a majority. Some people are obviously that other 30% are content with one pill a day. So why do we think that is? A big part of it is that, that people tell us that even though it's only one pill a day, that daily reminder 
of living with HIV is actually, um, I'd have to say, traumatic to people. And some people have even described themselves having feeling like they have some sort of a PTSD type feeling around it, like difficulty swallowing the pill just because emotionally they still feel that stigma because it's still a very stigmatized disease. And so, <clears throat> so that, I think that that's a big part of it. What we've heard from the participants in our clinical trials, as well as now people in the real world, is that when they shift from taking a pill every day to the long-acting therapy, they literally feel like a burden is lifted. They feel like they've been liberated from that. They're liberated from having to worry about whether or not they took their pill. They're liberated from that reminder. They're liberated from the worry of disclosure. And that disclosure piece is a huge fear for people when they, you know, that somebody walks in your house and opens your, you know, medicine cabinet and sees your medicine and asks you what it is or, or knows what it is and immediately that out you is living with HIV, that you're traveling and, and TSA looks at your bag and, and, and opens it up and asks you, what is this in front of a group of people and you're out at them? People live in fear of that. And so when you take that away, they were surprised and we were actually surprised at how much emotional relief people have felt in shifting to long acting. And so that's been, I think, the most rewarding part of this. When people tell you that it makes them feel like their lives are more normal, then that's, that, that as a drug developer feels like, you know, the, the holy grail that you're doing everything you can do. Absolutely, absolutely. And Deborah, another thing that I think is interesting is you guys aren't the only player in this space, right? There is Gilead as well that are, is working on something a bit longer term. How do you see how do you see this sort of market evolving? Will that will that be a benefit that there is competition in the sector and you may try and push it even further and try to go even longer? And you obviously mentioned that you're working on a cure yourself. So the first thing to say, having worked in the HIV space for kind of 20, I think 22 years now on and off is you need to, to really take this, this disease to a point where we could truly end the, end the epidemic. And therefore, it's great to have scientific endeavour across a number of different companies. So whilst we may compete in the market at a macro level, actually, there's a lot of respect between all of those uh, people who are working in companies on ending the epidemic, Gilead being one of those. We see from our competitors that they too are following our lead. So they have uh, got pipelines, which have got two drug regimens in, both oral, like uh, our own uh, oral, and then long acting. And I think what's going to happen is that you will see you know, a significant portion of the market remain in orals because actually people are happy to take a tablet every day. But you will see, we will see quite a significant expansion of the long acting market. And we forecast that long acting will be about sort of six or seven billion dollars in value by the time we get to 2030. And we will have a portion of that. And undoubtedly, our competitors have a portion of that. And actually having more players in that kind of long acting space does help develop and expand the market. So, you know, the, the patients and there's also a benefit, you know, for, for us as well, because we see the market getting bigger and we believe it's it's a big opportunity. And I suppose an issue about this as well is, is cost, right? So you mentioned, obviously, there are people in, in poorer communities um, in America, in sub-Saharan Africa. What is basically the cost of this versus if you were to take that daily regime of just one tablet a day versus the 
the longer term. So what is there a, a big cost difference between the two? No, we've priced it at the same level because actually you don't want cost to become an issue. So we, on that basis, when we bought our two drug longer, uh, our two drug oral, we actually priced it below where the three drug regimens were because we wanted to make sure that that had high levels of access across all the markets that we work in. And I think in the US, for example, we have like mid 90s access for our, our two drug um, oral regimen and a similar situation with the long acting. It's the same price as the orals. And again, we've got really good access. So price should not get in the way. We need to make sure that all the communities that could benefit do benefit. And it's great because we've seen that play out. Uh, and I think we've priced very sensibly and that's absolutely at the heart of who we are as a company. Okay. And Kim, one thing that I thought was interesting, what you, you mentioned about the stigma of this disease. Do you think that there is a way to sort of either get more diagnosis or to bring down those numbers? Do you think that there are, are there things that some countries have, you mentioned London has, is, is very effective and obviously that's a city, but it, London is very effective in the way that it approaches HIV. What works and what doesn't? What is the, is the way to kind of get people to know that they have the disease, to get treatment and even just to bring down the numbers of infection? Well, I think we have to diminish stigma, no question. And we, we've worked hard in, you know, really trying to uh, do everything possible to reduce stigma. And, and a number, one thing that I think has played some role in reducing the fact that, that, that we and, and other companies and the government promotes the, so you equals you notion, which is me, which means undetectable equals untransmittable. So people who are on treatment and have an undetectable viral load don't transmit to their sexual partners. That in itself, I think, is tremendously empowering. Allow it says to people who are living with HIV that you know you can have a normal life, you can have a normal sex life. You're worthy of being loved. You deserve to be loved. And so, it's addressing some of the you know some of the stereotypes and all of that is what I think we need to do to reduce stigma. There need to be wide scale testing programs, which have been in place, but I will say, unfortunately, actually were brought down quite a lot by COVID. And so that's got to, we've got to get past this and ramp those back up in order to identify people, get them into care and get them onto the best medications and actually have really the kind of wraparound services that can help marginalized communities stay in care and consistently stay on their medicine so they can be undetectable and and, and get the benefits of treatment. So it, it means that it's not just about making better medicines, but it's actually about being able to identify people, get them in the clinic, get them the right supports. And it may mean other services like mental health services and substance use services, all of those wraparound services to get the entire population under control. And I think places like London have really just done a, I mean, they had a smaller burden of disease to begin with, but They've done all of those things and do have programs. And I and I just have to say, you know, having a national health plan where everybody has access to to insurance or coverage does make a big difference. In the U.S., you, you know, we have a very lumpy health care environment where a lot of people don't have access to insurance. And, and that does make a difference. It makes it harder for them to consistently get into care and stay in care. I mean, we've touched on this a couple of times in, in this podcast, and I'm I'm just curious to know I mean, obviously, we've got the daily dose regime, which people are using effectively. It's keeping the virus at bay. You're going longer term. 
but a cure, a vaccine, whatever, what do you think is the sort of the next breakthrough? And I guess that could really shake up this market even further is, is hopefully that there is there is an end to all of this. I think the good thing is that there are, are researchers around the world who are working on a cure. We're work with the University of North Carolina as one of many other academic institutions that we work with, but specifically with University of North Carolina, we have a collaboration called Cura, where our V scientists work shoulder to shoulder with UNC scientists to work on uh, drugs that might be able to contribute to the cure. But we recognize it's not going to be one company that actually gets us to the cure. It's actually going to be the, the sort of a community of scientists, just like it was a community of scientists that get made the breakthroughs to get treatment uh, the way that it is. It'll be a, a community of scientists that gets us to a cure. The biggest challenge is that HIV basically creates a latent reservoir turns itself kind of off, hides in the immune system. The immune system can't see it and doesn't attack it. And that's what allows it to stay, even though people are on treatment and have their virus suppressed in their bloodstream for a long period of time, those latent cells are sitting there waiting to break out as soon as the person stops taking medicine. And so in order to get to a cure, we've got to find a way to get that virus sort of out of hiding find a way to clear that reservoir in order to in order to get them to a cure and it's a it, it's it's a tough it's a tough challenge obviously because you know we're 40 years into this disease and we're 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 still working hard to get there so i don't think there's going to there's a cure around the corner but i will say that the most optimistic thing is that there are a tremendous amount of investigators that are working on it we're learning more each year that helps us to start to figure out ways that we might be able to get there if you were both to forecast when we might see the next breakthrough in HIV, what would you say it might be? We've had a breakthrough actually in the last few months because it's not a treatment, but it's actually a, a preventative approach where we just bought a long acting injectable for the prevention of HIV to market. And that has created a huge amount of excitement and energy. And we're currently sitting in Los Angeles, having spent kind of three or four days connecting with physicians and the community and the excitement actually about what a long acting injectable for prevention could offer. It is huge. So that's kind of a very short term breakthrough. And I guess in the, in the longer term, I mean, you're probably best to reflect on that, Kim. I mean, I, I absolutely think long acting prep is a game changer because we do think that that can start to change the trajectory of the pandemic and actually start to see fewer and fewer infections occurring. But then what about the people who are already living with HIV? Can are we going to be able to get toward the cure? And, I, you know, I, I think the the optimistic thing is that there are a couple of people in the world who have been cured of HIV. Those individuals have a unique circumstance that they also happen to have leukemia or cancer where they where they got bone marrow transplants to treat the cancer. But they were transplanted with cells that were resistant to being infected by HIV. And that successfully led to a cure in at least two people. And so what now, that's obviously now scalable to the world, right? Everybody's not going to have a bone marrow transplant. The risk benefit certainly doesn't make sense. But it is, it's sort of a, it's sort of a roadmap that says it is possible to get there. And so that gives us optimism. So I would say from a cure perspective, I, I would expect a breakthrough would be us finding a way to turn that virus on in a, in a way that's safe enough that it doesn't cause so much side effect that it that isn't, you know, the risk balance versus taking medicines every day versus a very severe treatment to try to get to cure is, you know, not in favoring cure. 
So I think that's the next breakthrough is to really find a way to turn that virus on so that we can start to be able to clear it and get towards a cure. Fascinating stuff. Deborah, Kim, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Great to talk to you, Amy. Thank you, Amy. That's it for this week's exchange and thanks for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Sharon Lamb in Toronto and Oliver Tashlich in London. Subscribe to The Exchange and our sister podcast, Views Room, on a cast, megaphone or wherever you like to listen. Check out our latest views on BreakingViews.com and on Twitter where our handle is at BreakingViews.